0: Well, I can't imagine singing a more appropriate song at a time like this than that song that we just sang. And Even without you all here, I was having a hard time holding back the tears singing that truth, that he is worthy. And um, he's got this. And uh, no matter what happens, good or bad, even if this thing Gets worse before it gets better, as they say, could happen. It's not going to change the fact that Jesus is worthy. And what a what a joy, what a privilege of knowing Him and having a personal relationship with Christ. It makes all the difference in the world. And I was just thinking that song is is uh, so good for us to be singing right now because it's just a reminder to us that we live in a broken, sin-cursed world filled with all sorts of frightening and threatening things. And the Bible says that the earth itself anxiously longs for the day when it will be freed from the curse of sin and restored to its original state of perfection where there was no pain and no sorrow, no suffering, no disease, no death. And if you remember from our study of the book of Romans... Paul likened the earth's longing for redemption to a woman groaning during childbirth. Let me just read for you that section that we recently studied, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Well, the anxiousness that is expressed here in Romans chapter 8 is a good thing. It's a good kind of anxiousness. It's a kind of anxiousness that is commended by God. But typically, when anxiety is mentioned in the Bible, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And it's not commended by God. In fact, it's condemned by God. Proverbs 12, 25 says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Psalm 94, verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. This morning, I want to provide a good word to you. To those of you who may be feeling weighed down with worry, so that you'll be glad. My prayer this morning is that those of you who may feel like your thoughts have been taken captive by fear and anxiety will have your souls captivated and consoled by the truths of God's Word. And one of the most consoling and comforting passages in the entire Bible for anyone battling with fear and anxiety is found in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with you to Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading verses 22 through 32. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, and this will sound familiar to those of you who or maybe more familiar with the passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33 would be the parallel passage, but I like how Luke uh, presents it here in his gospel, and so we're going to use this as our text for this morning, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things, but seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I think you would agree with me that uh, this seems to be an extremely relevant, relatable text for us to consider in light of the present pandemic, and I would say present panic uh, in our country, while not everyone has been affected, nor will everyone be infected by the coronavirus, it seems that the coronavirus has infected pretty much everyone with fear and anxiety. In fact, the fear and anxiety surrounding COVID-19 is more contagious than the virus itself. Just watching and reading the nonstop news creates anxiety in our minds and our hearts. And just going to the grocery store puts us all in panic mode, it seems. And you see everyone else with their carts just overloaded with stuff and you're like am I crazy not to be like doing the same thing and maybe I should get an extra thing of this or an extra thing of that and 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 we all begin to panic I think it's fair to say that most people are worried sick we appreciate that idiom we know what that means when you are overly anxious about something we, we say well that person is worried sick or I'm just worried sick I think that's an appropriate label for a lot of people today. They're, they're just worried sick. And then and, and there's a lot of things, honestly, truly, uh, understandably, that we're tempted to worry about right now. Catching the virus, protecting our loved ones who are more high risk. We are tempted to worry about the plummeting oil prices, particularly those of us who live in the Houston area that is so dependent oftentimes on the rise and fall of the oil industry. And uh, we're worried about losing our jobs or being furloughed or taking a pay cut and paying our bills. Uh, We're worried about our investments as we watch them dwindle as the stock market crashes. And We're worried about maybe having to file bankruptcy, having to close our businesses, or for those of you who are students, finishing your classes, and those of you who are seniors, graduating, and what is that going to look like, and all this that you had looked forward to, and now it seems like you might just get your diploma in the mail. How fun is that? Anticlimactic, to say the least. I think there are many simply worrying about what the future holds. And apparently, there's a whole lot of people worried about running out of toilet paper still, so that's a huge concern. But all of these things that I've mentioned that we are tempted to worry about right now fall under the category of what Jesus called the worries of the world. He mentions it three times in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8. In the parable of the soils, he calls these the worries of the world. And Jesus was primarily referring to uh, material things worrying about money, worrying about food, worrying about clothes, worrying about, okay, toilet paper. And it seems that of all the things that we tend to worry about, these are the things that we worry about the most. That's the particular issue that Jesus addressed with his disciples here in Luke chapter 12. In fact, in this passage, he mentioned five times the words worry, anxiety, and fear. You may want to just reread that passage and just circle or underline or bracket the times that the word worry, anxiety, or fear are mentioned. But the context here is that Jesus just finished warning the multitudes about greediness or coveting. Verses 13 through 21, uh, someone had come to him and uh, asked him to help him divide the family inheritance. Um, And uh, Jesus said, well, um, who has appointed me as judge? Verse 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And so Jesus went on to Use the story, the parable of the rich fool who had a bumper crop and decided rather than giving some of that wealth away and ministering to others uh, through the way that God had blessed him, he decided just to build bigger barns and, and hunker down and, and, and uh, eat, drink, and be merry because he had nothing to worry about. And so Jesus is talking about greediness and coveting and then he turns now in verse 22 uh, he goes from talking to the multitudes to His disciples, and He warned them about anxiousness or worrying. And I think it's interesting that, that greediness or anxiousness and coveting or worrying are like two sides of the same coin. The, the world is made up of the, the haves and the have-nots. And money doesn't just pose a problem for those who have it, but also for those who don't have it. And the, the haves, those that have it, tend to depend on things rather than on God. And the have-nots tend to not depend on God for things. And Jesus said to the haves, hey, don't be greedy. Why? Because they never seem to have enough. And Jesus said to the have-nots, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry because they tend to be afraid they won't have enough. And again, after illustrating the the wrong attitude towards material things that that, uh, the rich fool uh, modeled, Jesus instructed his followers about the right attitude that they should have toward material things. And so in this passage, Jesus commanded them not to worry about material things, but he also explained to them why they shouldn't worry about them. And so what I want us to see this morning together as we look through this passage are six reasons why we shouldn't worry, okay? Six reasons why we should not worry. Number one, we shouldn't worry because life is not about material things. Life is not about material things. Notice verse 22. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, there is more to life than eating food and buying clothes. And yet that has become The priority of many people, especially those of us who live in the affluence of America. Our culture seems to be consumed with what we eat and what we wear. I mean, have you ever wondered why there are so many different restaurants to choose from? Why there are so many different clothing stores to to choose from? It's simply supply and demand. There's the demand out there, and so they just keep cranking out the supply, right, supplying us, and so companies are capitalizing on our insatiable appetite for food, literally, and clothes, and so they keep cranking out more kinds of food for us to eat, more kinds of clothes for us to wear. We tend to all make such a big deal about where we eat or what we wear when Jesus said it really doesn't matter. There are way more important things in life than, than food and clothes, and therefore, we shouldn't worry about it. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite old dead guys. Um, love his writings. He was an Anglican minister back in the late 1800s, um, uh, early 1900s um, in England And he has a tremendous resource called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. And this is what he said about this passage in Luke. He said, quote, we are not so to live as if we had nothing but a body. We are to live like beings who have immortal souls to be lost or saved, a death to die, a God to meet, a judgment to expect, and an eternity in heaven or in hell awaiting us. That'll sober us all up, won't it? In other words, there's a lot more to life than toilet paper. You have a soul that will last forever. And you will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. That's what life is all about. Life is all about getting right with God. So that when your life ends, you can spend eternity with him in heaven. And so we shouldn't worry because life is not about material things. Secondly, we shouldn't worry because God values us and will provide for us. God values us and will provide for us. Look at verse 24. Jesus goes on. He says, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Some of you may be bird watchers I know my folks are bird watchers they love to sit and uh, watch the the birds come to the feeders that they've set up and it's a fascinating thing it really is to watch these these creatures flit about every day Uh, but they're not frantically flying around working or worrying about what they're going to eat especially when people like my folks put lots of food out there for them all year round they know where to go they know where the goods are But ultimately, they're dependent on God's daily provision of food. They feel no need to hoard a bunch of stuff or to store up stuff in barns like the rich fool that Jesus just got done talking about. In fact, look back at verse 16. The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods and my toilet paper. Just kidding. I'm kind of giving everybody a hard time about the toilet paper. But the point is, he was a hoarder rather than a giver. And he thought to himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think that's what Jesus would have to say to the preppers in the world, and I'm not here to say that's necessarily a wrong thing to do. However, if you're prepping for something in the future, and you've got your stockpile of food and ammo and all the other things, I hope you're prepping your soul for eternity. Because that's what this guy completely overlooked. and all of his prepping, he completely overlooked the fact that someday he was going to have to be prepared to stand before the God of the universe, his creator, his sustainer, his judge. And so let's all make sure we're preparing our souls for eternity. I love what Jesus said here. He says, "How much more valuable you are than birds." We know that Jesus said elsewhere that a, a bird can't fall, just a, a simple little sparrow can't fall down without God knowing about it. How many times have you been sitting in your living room, perhaps, or your dining room, and all of a sudden you hear, a "Boom!" And you're all like, "What was that? And the dogs start barking, and everybody's looking around. what happened? And you go out on your back patio and you see a bird that just ran into the window, right, and is laying there, usually dazed, hopefully, and you just need to kind of help them get up and get moving again. But sometimes they, they die because of that. But guess what? God saw that. God knows that. And how many times is that happening all over the world in any given day? It says not even a sparrow falls with God not knowing it. and that's a bird, that's one of his lesser creatures. We are the pinnacle of God's creative juices, if you will. it's, It's humans, and so it stands to reason that we are more valuable than anything else God ever created, and if God values birds enough to provide for them, then how much more will he provide for us since we are far more valuable to him than any other creature that he's ever made. And so we should never worry about whether God will provide for us or not. He always provides for those he loves. I think it's important just to note here, lest anyone think that what Jesus was advocating is for us just to kind of sit around and wait for him to drop stuff off, you know, care packages from heaven. One commentator said it it this way, when the Lord Jesus said that we should not worry about food and clothing, he did not mean that we were to sit idly and wait for these things to be provided. Christianity does not encourage laziness, but he certainly did mean that in the process of earning money for the necessities of life, we were not to let these things assume undue importance. Let's just keep it all in perspective, is what Jesus is saying here. So, we're not to worry because life is not about material things. We're not to worry because God values us and will provide for us. And thirdly, we're not to worry because worry accomplishes nothing. Look at verse 25. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? I hear a bit of sarcasm here in Jesus's tone this question Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? He wanted to show the futility of worrying. That none of us can add a single second to our lives by worrying. In other words, no matter how much you worry about something, it's not going to change anything except maybe give you an ulcer, which is, by the way, proven medically that worry does have physical effects on our bodies, negative effects. Worrying about getting the coronavirus isn't going to keep you from getting it. Worrying about the future and what it holds for you and your job and your future isn't going to change what God has ordained to happen in the future. In the parallel passage in Matthew, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 34, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In other words, there's going to be plenty of stuff to worry about tomorrow. Don't add that to what you're already bearing today. God never intended us to to bear it all at once. He knew we couldn't handle it. And I think that's why he doesn't reveal the future to us, because in our finiteness, we could not bear it. So Jesus is saying here, listen, if you, if it doesn't matter if you worry or not, whether you worry about little things or big things, it doesn't change anything, then why do it? It's pointless to worry about anything. Worrying is useless. It's it's a waste of precious time and energy. And so we shouldn't worry because worry accomplishes absolutely nothing. Well, there's a fourth reason why we shouldn't worry, and that is we should... Uh, excuse me, worry exposes a lack of faith. We shouldn't worry because worry exposes a lack of faith. Look at verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? He was getting in the disciples' kitchen here. He just pulled the grenade and threw it in their foxhole, if you will. Here were the, this group of men, this small band of men who had given up everything to follow Christ and they had committed themselves to live by faith. They had literally left everything, their livelihoods, their homes, their families uh, to follow Jesus. And they were dependent on Jesus to provide them with whatever they needed on a daily basis. And so he was challenging them here to trust him by comparing them to the flowers in a a grassy field. And we've got a great image right now here around uh, Texas uh, in the springtime. We have the, the blue bonnets have come out in all of their glory, and the Indian paintbrushes, and as you just drive around, even here in the Montgomery area, just, they're beautiful. And they just grow. They just pop up, and out of nowhere, it seems, and, and, uh, and yet their natural beauty, according to Jesus here, far surpasses the magnificent attire for which King Solomon was so famous. And Jesus' point was simply this, if, if God so lavishly clothes grass that is here today and gone tomorrow, then how much more lavishly will he clothe us who will live forever? I would encourage some of you, if you're able to, this week, a, a really practical way to to meditate on the truths in this text is to go out for a drive. Go drive out 105 and go out into the country where you can just look at these blue bonnets and these Indian paintbrushes and as you're looking at them, remember this text that consider the blue bonnets, consider the the Indian paintbrushes and all the other beautiful wildflowers here in Texas and, and just how they grow and they're not toiling, they're not spinning. God's just... Just making them beautiful and adorning the grass and the fields with these things. And, and what a great reminder, a visual reminder to us right now of God's faithful care and provision for us. That God is worthy of our total trust. Uh, Maybe a simple way to say it is, is worry. Worry is what we do when we don't trust God. Worrying and trusting God are mutually exclusive. You can't do both at the same time. You can either worry or you can trust God. Or you can trust God or you can worry, but you can't do both. Take your pick. And when we worry, it reveals we don't believe God's promises to take care of us. We doubt his power and his ability to provide for us, and we question his love and concern for us. And so we shouldn't worry because it exposes our lack of faith. He said it straight up to these guys, you men of little faith. I recently read a helpful definition of faith, particularly in our present situation. You want to hear it? Faith is the refusal to panic. That's faith. Faith is the refusal to panic. And so let's not worry because worry exposes a lack of faith. Number five, a fifth reason why we shouldn't worry is because worry makes us just like the rest of the world. Worry makes us just like the rest of the world. Look at verse 29. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. By by the way, do you notice how Jesus continues to command his disciples to stop worrying And I haven't said this yet, but hopefully it's obvious to to all of you that if we're being commanded not to do something, that means whatever we're being commanded not to do is what? Sin. That worry is sin. Albeit a respectable sin, one of those sins that we all struggle with and so we don't feel so bad about it. We even joke about it, make light of it. We're not overly embarrassed to admit it, like we are other sins, but it is a sin nonetheless. And so Jesus says here, do not keep worrying. Again, J.C. Rowles said that this phrase, do not keep worrying, was borrowed from ships out at sea which when seen from the shore, they appear lifted up and tossed and to and fro and restless. And if you ever watched a a boat bobbing out there, he, he said, hey, stop bobbing around. Stop being blown and tossed by the winds and the waves. And then he said this, this phrase, do not stop or do not keep worrying, quote, implies a state of suspense, doubt, and anxiety about the future. I thought, wow, that's very appropriate because aren't we all sort of living in this state of suspense? We're just living in suspense, waiting to see what happens and how this thing all plays itself out, and so we're all kind of like, this, and he says, hey, quit it. Quit living in suspense. Relax. Trust me. And we as believers, we who have committed our lives to Christ, who have the Spirit of God in us, have been set apart from the rest of the world. We we should act differently than everyone else. Why? Because we have someone living inside of us, the Spirit of God, right, who helps us not live like the rest of the world does. And when we worry, we're acting like people in the world that don't know God, that don't have the Spirit of God in them. Why? Because unbelievers don't have a relationship with God. They they don't relate to him as their loving, caring, heavenly father. They can't relate to him as their loving, caring, heavenly father. They They don't acknowledge him or depend on him or thank him for anything. And as a result, they're left to fend for themselves like orphans. And so they scratch and they claw to get as much as they can, and the whole time they're worrying if they'll have enough or if someone will steal it from them. And I'm sure some of you have seen the the, the clips on YouTube and other news channels of people literally getting into fistfights over stuff at the grocery store. Why is that? Well, that's what orphans do. They're, they're constantly fighting amongst themselves and every man for himself, every orphan for himself and, and, and you gotta get as much as you can for yourself and it's a survival mode. But beloved, we are not orphans. And so we should not worry about these things and if we do, we're acting no different than unsaved people. And what's worse, we're a terrible witness when we worry. I mean, why would anyone wanna become a Christian if they see us worrying all the time like everyone else? It's like, well, that apparently has nothing to offer me. There's nothing appealing about that to other people. There's nothing intriguing about us when we just look like the rest of the world. And so we shouldn't worry because it's totally pagan. Or what has been referred to as practical atheism. Are you familiar with that expression? That there are a lot of Christians, people who claim to have a relationship with God, who live practically like atheists. We live like God doesn't exist. And so try that on. Be honest with yourself. Look back at maybe the last few days, the last couple of weeks, and have you been guilty of practical atheism? Living as if there was no God, even though you know that there is a God and you have a personal relationship with God, but the way you're living, the way you're thinking, the the decisions you're making and what you're doing, if someone was watching you, they wouldn't know that there was a God, because you're not living like there's a God. And so we don't want to worry, because worry makes us just like the rest of the world. And then lastly, one more reason here in this text why we shouldn't worry, is because God is an all-knowing, generous Father. God is an all-knowing, generous Father. Notice verse 30. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So Jesus emphasized the fatherhood of God in these verses, and He likened God to a father who knows the needs of His children, even before they ask. Look back at the previous chapter, Luke 11, and here Jesus was teaching them about prayer. And uh, when you need something, all you need to do is ask and you'll receive it, seek and you'll find it, knock and it will be opened. Verse 11, so this is Luke eleven eleven. Now suppose one of your fathers, or excuse me, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? When my kids ask me for certain things, I, I don't, you know, I want to I want to provide it for them. I, you know, hey, what? Hey, Dad, can we have this? Can we go here? Can can we eat this? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And I I, I do my best to to provide for their needs and even to uh, bless them with some of their wants. It's a great joy. It's a great blessing as a dad to be to be able to provide for your family. That's just what daddies do, right? But guess what? I'm an evil dad. I'm a sinful dad. And notice what he says in verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God's a way better dad than me. He's a way better dad than any of you dads. And he'll take care of you. Why? Because we're his kids. And that's what daddies do. I was thinking about um, that expression that we have that we think about sometimes in these crazy days that we're living in. Oh, to be a child again. Have you thought about that? Man, remember the days of childhood where you didn't have a care in the world. I had the privilege of spending time yesterday with uh, a family in our church, and they have younger kids, and I remember just watching them play around the house and just do all the things that they were doing, and I mean, you would have never known there was anything going on in the world. And it's not that they were clueless, because I know their mom and dad have shared with them, and shepherded them about it. But you know what? It's not that they were clueless. They didn't care. Why should they care? Dad's going to take care of them. Mom's going to take care of them, right? So they were just having fun playing. They weren't worried or stressed out about where their next meal was going to come from or how are they going to pay the mortgage. They were just trusting Dad to take care of them. And I think that's why Jesus had a special place in his heart for children. In fact, he commended children for their simple faith. He challenged his followers to to have childlike faith in him. Why? Because God knows what we need. How does he know what we need? He's omniscient. He knows everything. And not only is he omniscient, he's omnipotent, which makes him able to provide whatever we need. There's things that I know my family needs or maybe wants, but I just don't have the means to provide it for them for whatever reason, but that's not true of God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. It's all his. And he's not only our father, he's also the king. He's the ruler. He's the sustainer. He's the controller of all things. He has the power and resources to do anything he wants. And so we need to acknowledge his sovereignty over us and submit to his authority over us. And furthermore, what Jesus said here is we need to seek to advance his kingdom here on this earth by encouraging others to repent of their rebellion against him and submit to him as their lord and king we're probably more familiar with how Luke recorded this, Matthew chapter six, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, our number one priority in life should be to glorify God, to honor God, to obey God, to serve him with our lives, to be those living sacrifices that we sang about earlier. And so instead of being consumed with getting a lot of stuff to use for ourselves, we need to be consumed with using whatever God gives us for His purposes and to serve others. Instead of being burdened by food and and clothes, we need to be burdened by the souls of men and women who are lost and dying and going to hell. I mean, what, what does it look like practically to have these these spiritual kingdom priorities that Jesus was exhorting us as his followers to have, seeking, what does it look like to seek his kingdom? Well, when you go to a restaurant, not now, but someday, I'm sure the restaurants will open back up and we'll all be able to go back to restaurants. When you go to that restaurant, be more concerned about sharing the gospel with your server than you are What's on the menu? Or if you go to the mall, when it opens back up, right? Be be more concerned about sharing the gospel with that sales attendant that you are about what you're wanting to buy. Nothing wrong with going out and eating at a restaurant. Nothing wrong with going to the mall and buying a new outfit. But ultimately, that's not why you're there. If you have a kingdom mindset, if you 're seeking first his kingdom james or, excuse me, William McDonald, the commentator I love to read uh, weekly whenever I study a text. He said this about here he says this is something." He says, excuse me, there is something more important in life than what we eat and what we wear. We are here as ambassadors of the king and all considerations of personal comfort and appearance must be subordinated to the one glorious task of making him known. And Jesus promised here that when God and his kingdom have priority in our lives, he promises to provide for all the necessities in our lives all these things will be added to you. Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. We're not orphans, beloved. We're not beggars. God will provide the basic necessities of life, but more importantly, he will give us eternal life. Notice, he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Can I just say that's a lot better than toilet paper? Sorry, I had to throw one more toilet paper thing in there, right? That's the best thing Ever. And so God is a, a, a generous Father who loves us and cares for us, just like a shepherd does his sheep. He says, don't be afraid, little flock. And he promises that whatever we sacrifice here on earth will not be in vain because someday we will be given the privilege of reigning with him in his kingdom forever and Ever. And ever. And so the choice is simple. We can spend our lives building our own kingdom here on earth, only to lose it all someday and spend eternity in hell. Or we can spend our lives building God's kingdom here on earth and know the joy of spending eternity in heaven. You see, if we put Christ first in our lives, we have nothing to worry about in this life or in the life to come. So all this talk about not worrying is is not just to get us through the coronavirus. This is for eternity. We have a glorious kingdom waiting for us in heaven. And notice what Jesus said, and I didn't include this in the text, but notice how he finishes up this section some would say it's connected to what he just got done saying maybe it's, it's it should be alone but i see a connection verse 33 sell your possessions and give to charity make yourselves money belts which do not wear out and unfailing treasure in where heaven where no thief comes nor uh, near nor moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also Here Jesus gave the the cure for coveting and worrying. What is that? Give away as much as possible. Jesus wasn't telling us to be destitute. Don't, Don't give everything away and become a homeless person. That's not helping. He's simply saying be generous. Serve other people with what God has given you. And the point there when he says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, listen, what we worry about reveals who or what we worship. Think about that. What do you worry about most? That's what you worship. That's the idol in your life, whatever that might be. An idol is anything that you're living for other than the Lord, and when we worry about stuff here on earth, it reveals that we're more concerned about this life than we are about the life to come. It, it proves that our heart is here and not in heaven. Again, J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts, says this, when we... When can we be said to seek the kingdom of God? What what does this mean? But seek his kingdom. How how do we know we're doing that? He says we do so when we give a primary place in our minds to the interest of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom which shall endure forever. Happy are they who belong to it, love it, live for it, pray for it, and labor for its increase and prosperity. Their labor shall not be in vain. And then he says this, may we give all diligence to make our calling into this kingdom sure. And so I ask you this morning, are you sure that you're a part of God's kingdom? Do you know God as your heavenly father? Are you one of his children? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You can't, know Jesus, you can't know God as your heavenly Father unless you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You say, how do I do that? Well, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so what do you need to believe? You need to believe the fact that you're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell. You need to believe that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and he took God's wrath against sin upon himself and he rose again from the dead to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice in the place of sinners like us. You believe that and you believe that what he did for you on the cross is the only way that you can be made right with God and then you also believe that what it means to be a Christian is not just believing certain things about Jesus but believing to the point where you commit your entire life to follow and obey him as your Lord and your master. And so if you receive Jesus, you are given the privilege of becoming a child of God. And it would be just like God to ordain a worldwide health crisis like coronavirus to bring many people to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe that's what he's wanting to accomplish in your life through this whole thing that this is all about your relationship with him and he wants to have a relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm sure if you're like me, you've been looking at the internet and all the different things that are being written and articles that are being shared and I came across a, a helpful article, maybe you have seen it as well, but this was written by the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis back in 1948, sh- shortly after World War II. And the article was titled, quote, On Living in an Atomic Age. And it addressed the, the public concerns of his day, one of which was the newly developing societal fear of the atomic bomb. What was life going to be like now that we invented the atomic bomb? And it set a lot of people on edge. And they, like we, back then, and us now, they were living in suspense of what were the ramifications going to be of this new weapon. And what some have pointed out, that C.S. Lewis might as well have been writing about the coronavirus. In fact several have suggested inserting coronavirus every time the atomic bomb or bomb is mentioned. And so let me just read this for you if you've not had the the privilege of reading it yet. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb or the coronavirus. How are we to live in an atomic age or an age where there are pandemics, like the one we're experiencing. He says, I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you already are living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb, before the coronavirus was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. <laughs> If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, coronavirus, let that bomb, virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. Or viruses. They may break our bodies. And ironically, he said, quote, a microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. That's a good word. For those of us who are tempted to let all of this dominate our minds. Don't be afraid, little flock. God will give us the kingdom. Let's pray. God, what a good word from your word today for all of us. There's so much here for us to chew on, to meditate on, and I pray that even now as families turn off the live stream that they might take a few minutes and just visit together about how they were encouraged or challenged by the message and spend a few minutes praying together that, that uh, you would help them to put into practice what they just heard, that they would not just be hearers of the word but, but doers of the word. And Lord, would you grant us grace as we continue to persevere? that we would not let all that we've been watching and hearing and reading dominate our minds and steal our joy, make us scared, make us anxious, cause us to worry and panic. But Lord, we just continue to live our lives and uh, make the most of this opportunity, really an unprecedented opportunity, not not the disease itself, but just what it's provided us, and that is time to spend with you, time to spend with each other, and that we would enjoy that and be able to look back on this time and rejoice at your goodness and your faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.